Toledo. It's Iran, September the 8th, 1978, Black Friday. You're an officer conscripted to the Iranian army. After months of demonstrations in the streets of Tehran, anger is at a boiling point. The demonstrations will turn violent. There is something different about today. It's hard to describe. It just feels different. You watch as the protesters get louder and closer. You can see the anger in their eyes. They hate you or at least what you stand for, who you stand for. All of the anger and resentment climax in one sound that rings across Jale Square. Angry shouts turn into desperate pleas for mercy as shot after shot rings out. The crowd is now frantically trying to escape. When the smoke settles, you see hundreds of unarmed protesters lying on the ground, dead or wounded. This is the turning point in public opinion for the shot. The clergy gives voice to victims, calling for nationwide strikes. The freedom movement has united, galvanized with a religious base. The Shah's fate seems sealed when the entire petroleum industry joins the strikes. He's indecisive, in part because of a terminal cancer diagnosis, wondering what the world's reaction will be. He's torn between leaving his country for treatment and staying to shore up support for his son's leadership. Later that year, in December, it's Muharram, 1978. The first 10 days of the first month of the Muslim calendar is a time of commemoration, ironically, of the martyrdom of the Prophet's grandson. It is a holy month. Violence is prohibited in Islam, which may have worked to the Shah's favor because over two million people took to the streets of Tehran. As a military officer, you consider if your actions against civilians has gone too far. Worse, your fellow conscripts desert to the opposition, as far as you can tell, to very open arms. These are your people. Perhaps the Shah is the man they claim. The Shah's military foundation, his final defense, begins to crumble. In a last-ditch effort, the Shah appoints Shapur Bakhtiar, one of the leaders of the freedom movement, as prime minister to bridge the gap between his regime and the moderates. Bakhtiar's only condition? That the Shah leaves the country for medical treatment. He reaches out to world leaders for refuge. There are efforts in the United States to welcome him. Henry Kissinger, the former Secretary of State, David Rockefeller, the founder of Chase Bank, both close friends. However, President Jimmy Carter does not budge. The Shah eventually has to find refuge in Egypt, where he dies less than a year later. But he lost Iran long before this point. Two weeks later, after the Shah leaves Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini, a cleric in exile, returns from Paris to a new nation. Former military and protesters alike welcome him as a hero. You stand in the crowd as you watch the leader of a new Iran emerge from the plane. This is a new Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran. From Toledo Society, I'm Professor Saeed Khan, and this is 1400 OMG, your guide to what the hell happened in modern Muslim history. In this series, we will look at key events in the Muslim world over the last two centuries in order to dig deep into some of the root causes of the situation many find themselves in today. In today's episode, we'll focus on the events that culminated in the 1979 Islamic Iranian Revolution. 
This was a momentous event in regional history, but Muslims in the West will perhaps wonder why. You will hear and understand the causes of the revolution. You will hear about Western interests prior to and during that revolution. And most importantly, you'll understand how what happened in 1979 in Iran shaped Western perceptions of Islam over the past four decades. It's 1953. Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh seeks to audit the documents of the British oil company, the Anglo-Iranian Oil Corporation (AIOC). When the company refuses to cooperate, Parliament votes to nationalize the oil industry, which effectively ends the British monopoly on the country's resources. In response, Great Britain organizes a worldwide boycott of Iranian goods to pressure them economically into submission. According to international law, any country has the right to nationalize any sector of its industry within its borders, as long as it pays fair market value to the owner of those assets. Of course, for the British, that meant no future revenue from the oil, only the present value. And given the fact that petroleum has steadily increased in value around the world and is such a major strategic asset, this was going to be a devastating loss to the British economy. Judging Mossadegh to be "Quote unquote unreliable because of his non-cooperation and because of a relationship, shall we call it, with the Soviets, the MI6, and the CIA back a coup d'état. After a decade of democracy and civilian politics, Prime Minister Mossadegh is deposed, arrested, and charged with treason. He remains under house arrest until his death. Power is concentrated, and civilian politics are all but quashed." As a precondition to the coup, Iran is to allow a conglomerate of five U.S. companies, along with Royal Dutch Shell and the French oil company, to draw petroleum from the land. Mohammad Reza Pahlavi is installed as Shah, unknown to him at the time, the last Shah, and he vows to oppose any communist ideas spreading in his region. Despite the concentration of power and support from Western powers, the Shah attempts to solidify support and legitimize his dynasty among his own people. The middle class is growing more hostile after the overthrow of civilian politics, so the Shah targets the peasant class for an alliance. In 1963, the Shah embarks on a rather ambitious set of reforms known as the White Revolution. He introduces land reforms, which effectively end the feudal landlord system by purchasing the land from the landlords at a quote-unquote fair price and selling it to peasants for 30% value. He extends the right to vote to women, which brought condemnation from the clergy. He offers free food for needy women and babies up to two years old, compulsory free education with a modern curriculum, and introduces a social security and national insurance system. Profit sharing, stabilizing rent costs, and campaigns against unreasonable profiteering are all reforms geared toward building a base among the poorest of Iranian citizens. No one is really going to complain about the majority of these, as they are appealing to all Iranians. So the Shah is first met with minor opposition to the reforms. Unfortunately, the projects were too ambitious, and they were destined to fail. There are clear advancements in Iran's economic and technological conditions, but the land reforms are simply not sustainable, and ultimately the program collapses. To be fair, land reforms were attempted in every Middle Eastern country during the 20th century. 
but unfortunately they were unsuccessful in all of those countries. The poorest do not receive any land to sustain themselves. This leads to widespread disillusionment among the Shah's base, and alienates the more powerful elites and clergy who oppose many of the reforms. All of this lays the groundwork for the revolution to come 16 years later. Just a quick note regarding Toledo Society. 1400 OMG is one podcast in a network of podcasts called Toledo Society. To find out more, visit ToledoSociety.com. October 1971 marks the commemoration of the 2500th anniversary of the ancient Persian monarchy. For the celebration, the Shah decides to throw an extravagant party in the ancient city of Persepolis, the former capital of the Persian Empire, burned to the ground in 336 before the Common Era by none other than Alexander the Great. 600 guests are flown in to attend the all-expense-paid ceremony. The cost of this ceremony? 200 million US dollars. Now to place that in context, and adjusting for the rate of inflation, in current dollars, that would mean $1.2 billion. For some, the invite list reads as a rogues gallery, a who's who of odious people from around the world. There is President or Marshal Tito from Yugoslavia, Emperor Haile Selassie from Ethiopia, the most decorated man in history, mostly because he put most of those medals on his own chest, Kim Jong-il from North Korea, and then a who's who from the Arab world, including Sheikh Zayed from the United Arab Emirates, Sultan Qaboos from Oman, King Hussein from Jordan. And of course, the Western world was certainly not underrepresented in who showed up. There was Chancellor Willy Brandt of West Germany, President Nixon from the United States couldn't make it, but he sent Vice President Spiro Agnew. Queen Elizabeth II decided that perhaps it might be beneath her station to attend, so instead she sent her husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, and her daughter, Princess Anne. The Shah and his wife, Faradiba, are on full display with all possible pageantry. The decorations, the venues, even the menu is something to envy. The menu included 50 roast peacocks, Iran's ancient national symbol, with restored tail feathers and stuffed with foie gras, Dom Perignon Rosset 1959 Reserve Vintage, and the entire meal was catered by the famed Maxime of Paris, a restaurant with such great fame and yet was closed for two whole weeks when the chef was brought on site to supervise the meal. One of the biggest slights of this event, beyond, of course, its lavish expense, is that few Iranians are invitees to the celebration. This was clearly a party to impress the rest of the world. While the economy of Iran deteriorates, the Shah's opulent lifestyle accelerates the agitation and resentment toward his regime. This further alienates the elites, but also alienates the poor, the very people upon whom he was counting to be his base of support. The Persepolis celebration becomes a symbol for the Shah's disregard of his own people and serves as a catalyst for a revolution to come.
As the Iranian people become more agitated with the Shah's opulent lifestyle, nepotism, and economic mismanagement, the Shah makes a decision that reeks of dictatorship. He begins a political clampdown. In 1975, the Shah abandons the two-party system and founds the sole political organization called the Resurgence Party. He begins to limit the economic autonomy of the Shia clergy as an effort to reduce the role of Islam in daily life by glorifying the monarchy in opposition to an Islamic identity. Wasteful government spending leads to rising inflation rates and an uneven distribution of oil wealth, the greatest sufferers being the urban middle class. The Shah begins to spend exorbitant amounts of money on weapons as President Nixon opens the USA's non-nuclear arsenal for purchase. After all, President Nixon had declared that Iran in the 1970s was one of the twin pillars of American foreign policy in the Persian Gulf along with Saudi Arabia. An irony in today's terms. It's also important to recognize that despite the fact that the price of oil quadrupled in 1973 after the Arab oil embargo, much of the benefit from the revenue of that oil was not seen or experienced by the Iranian people. Modernization at the expense of Islamic traditions, inflation due to excessive spending, and Western weapons purchase solidified the opposition's view that the Shah was dependent upon and an agent of Western imperialism. The Shah's response to this? Well, of course, he begins torturing political prisoners and deploying his secret police force, the Savak, which is thought to be facilitated by Western intelligence agencies. After winning the United States presidential election in 1977, Jimmy Carter pressures the Shah to implement liberal reforms like relaxed police controls and even the release of political prisoners. However, even this backfires on the Shah because it emboldens the opposition to speak out more. It is taken as a confirmation that the Shah is in the wrong. Imagine it's the late 1970s, and you're a student from a new secular state-run university. This is a push by the Shah to secularize the culture with the long-term goal of undermining the clergy and, by extension, Islam's authority over Iranians' everyday lives. This move seems to benefit you and your friends because prior to this, a higher education was next to impossible to attain. But everyone knows why the Shah is making a secular education so accessible. On your campus, you begin hearing of movements being organized with the aim of toppling the Shah's regime. You hear of a man named Mahdi Bazargan, who is a leader in the new freedom movement. Bazargan seems to believe in a secular government without abandoning Islam, which gives him a great appeal to many who oppose the Shah. You will also hear of Ali Shariati, who seems to be the brain behind the movement. He, like Bazargan, was educated in Paris and influenced by the revolutionary writers and individuals like Che Guevara and Franz Fanon. Despite his secular education, Shariati too believes that Islam should play a role in wider society. He believes that Shiism is an activist faith requiring opposition to injustice and assertion of cultural heritage. The freedom movement is initially favoring a restoration of the 1906 constitution. However, the clergy is bitterly split. Some believe there's no space for the ulama in politics. Others believe in aligning with the secularists for the restoration of the constitution. On what seems to be the fringe is a militant movement that begins to gain traction 
and whose ultimate goal is an Islamic State. In the midst of these rising movements, Ayatollah Rahullah Khomeini begins to absorb an overall leadership role. Khomeini is a cleric who leads the militant group. He was convinced that the Shah's goal was to break the ulama. His history with the Shah goes back to the previous decade when he was arrested for sedition in 1963. He was exiled to Turkey, but found his way to Paris, where he would record his sermons preaching against the Shah's regime. The sermons were illegal in Iran, but were smuggled back into the country by way of cassette tape. Khomeini's most influential idea was published in a book called Vilayt al-Faqih, Rule by the Jurist. He argued that governments should be ruled in accordance with Islamic law under the guidance of a leading jurist. The concept is foreign to Islamic history, but it is Khomeini's main argument for ousting the Shah. Initially, this concept is seen as problematic to the freedom movement, which is pursuing a more secular approach of governance, but eventually the movements morph into one. In January 1978, a government paper attacking Khomeini is released. Iran's public rejects it categorically, and student activists and merchants begin to amp up their protests. Some of these protests turn violent. By the summer of 1978, the Shah realizes that public confidence in his regime has turned completely against him. He tries to implement new reforms by slowing down the economy to reduce inflation and to implement austerity measures. He imposes martial law as more and more protesters call for him to step down and they call for the return of the exiled Khomeini. After Black Friday, several more weeks of violent protests and the carnage during the month of Muharram, the Shah leaves Iran under the guise of medical treatment for a cancer diagnosis. Two weeks later, on February the 1st, 1979, Khomeini comes back to Iran in grand triumph. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. In the next episode, we will hear about the arrival of Ayatollah Khomeini and the impact of his rule within Iran and beyond. Please visit us on ToledoSociety.com to find out more and to get in touch. <laughs>